This is a Federal News Network podcast. A section in the 2023 Defense Department budget request would change how DOD manages its civilian workforce. The American Federation of Government Employees thinks it could lead to wholesale reductions in the civilian ranks. For what's going on, we turn to AFGE's Defense Department Legislative Representative John Anderson. He talked with Tom Temin. There is a massive contradiction in the president's budget between, and I, I found it very positive when I saw the sections about strengthening the federal government workforce and improving the hiring process, then buried in the technical appendixes is a reversion back to some very failed practices that occurred over the past decade, where the workforce's funding levels were disrupted through the operation of personnel caps. Now, the way a personnel cap operates is that funding that has been set aside and budgeted for the civilian workforce, once a civilian gets promoted, retires, leaves for another job, that manager who is responsible for the function has to worry about keeping that position because it becomes ripe for the takings by the comptroller. And the comptroller doesn't really care that much about total force management or the civilian workforce hiring. That's the responsibility of the undersecretary of personnel and readiness to be the champion for that. And if you have an incumbent, a political appointee, performing the duties of undersecretary of defense personnel and readiness, and they either have been delayed in their appointments or have not really gotten up to speed in being a vigorous advocate of this function, the comptroller, given their normal practices, will just say, sure. oh, this is an easy way for me to harvest some dollars. And so they will take the money if it's a vacant position. And if it's a vacant position, they don't have to do a risk. So it completely eludes any kind of congressional oversight. And then they wonder why this is the front end of the problems with the hiring process that most people don't really get to. They just look at the back end once a position is established, and they don't look at the front end of when a person leaves a position and the vacancies in place, and then it's a free-for-all to protect that position. All right. So you have written to the chair of the House Appropriations Committee Defense Subcommittee and to Senator Tester, who's chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee Defense Subcommittee, the two big defense subcommittee folks, and said you're citing Section 129 of Title 10, which is the overall kind of statute for civilian employees in the Defense Department. And you said that the provision in the request for next year eviscerates that. So tell us what 129 does and how this request from the Biden administration eviscerates it. Okay. 129 specifically mandates that the civilian workforce is to be solely managed based upon the total force management principles in a separate section 129A, which is separate from 129, and it is to be managed solely based on those total force management principles the workload that's to be performed, and the funding provided by Congress. Now, the total force management policies that are supposed to be followed, they are the responsibility of the Undersecretary of Defense Personnel and Readiness to be the champion of those and advocate for those. And those policies require the department to look at 
the civilian workforce and the functions they perform holistically together with the capabilities provided by the active and reserve component military and the contractor workforces. And to look at things from the standpoint of cost and risk. And the elements of risk deal with readiness, lethality, stress on the military force, and operational effectiveness. Now, the thing that really was alarming was not just this technical change, but the performance of the department during various budget hearings and posture hearings before the House Armed Services Committee, Senate Armed Services Committee, and in particular, the Senate Appropriations Committee and the House Appropriations Committee subcommittees of defense. And in particular, in a hearing before the House Appropriations Committee subcommittee defense, when ranking member Calvert did his perennial, he has done this for the past 15 years, saying, let's reduce the civilian workforce by some arbitrary number. In this case, since military instrength is going down, you should proportionately reduce the civilian workforce. And he had that entered in the record without objection. And there was no vigorous rebuttal consistent with the department's previous budget posture briefings and everything else. Instead, they met it with, oh, we are always ready to become more efficient. Now, when you look at past government accountability office audits of the department, when they have tried to become more efficient by cutting the civilian workforce, they found that essentially the department just shifted the requirement done by civilians to higher cost contractors or to military to the detriment of readiness and hollowing the force. We're speaking with John Anderson. He's DOD's legislative representative at the American Federation of Government Employees. So the key sentence here is during the current fiscal year, which would be 2023, and this is from the request, the civilian personnel of the Department of Defense may not be managed solely on the basis of any constraint or limitation in terms of man years, end strength, et cetera, et cetera. So you're interpreting this to be a gambit to just make wholesale cuts to the civilian workforce? Yes, because of the, the interposition of the word solely suggests that, well, they primarily may be managed based on that. And in fact, that provision, before it was changed by the appropriators to conform to the Title 10, Section 129 and 129A, in fact, was interpreted that way. It was interpreted to say, we can manage the caps. And in fact, that's the way we do it. And as a result, you had massive levels of basically the the department coming in and saying, we're going to spend X amount on the civilian workforce. And then they would not spend that. They would shift it to contractors, essentially. So the question now is, have you gotten any response from the appropriators here? I mean, this was section 8008 in the appropriations request out of probably 12,000 And I can guarantee you no member of Congress can name all 12,000. So were they aware of it? Do they agree with you? What's the reaction been so far since this letter? Well, I'd say on the Democratic side, the reaction of the appropriators has has been to thank me for pointing out this disconnect. There has been some follow-up, I understand, with the department to try and find out just exactly where this came from. 
I have a sense that they haven't been answered yet. And I, my instincts are the department is probably trying to figure out how it got in there. Right. Now, because it did I, come from a democratic administration too. Yeah. Now my hypothesis is, is that in the bureaucratic coordination process, this is a highly technical provision. It's possible. This is my speculation. It's possible. It came from the controller and that the PNR the personnel and readiness people, because that function was weakened in the prior administration and the current incumbent has not really, uh, from my perspective, really vigorously taken on that function, that they missed it. That's the benign interpretation of this. Now, a more nefarious interpretation is this was deliberate. I doubt that. I think it was probably a bureaucratic glitch. I'd like to give them the benefit of that doubt. But it also reflects the fact that the performance of the department during budget and posture hearings in this area has not been very good, and they did not prepare their senior leaders when Calvert gave them something that would be very easy to answer if they just read their own documentation in the past that they've done on the civilian workforce. They answer him and say... Actually, workload is going up. Operational demand is going up. The national defense strategy does not say that military instincts should go down. The only reason it's going down is we're not able in this current job market to get people to agree to enlist at the level of quality that we would like to have. Now, the people that were closest to getting that direction were the Army, so I applaud the way they performed in the hearings. But in general, the department overall has not really adequately rebutted Ranking sure. Member Calvert. And it was, if they just read their own documentation, it would be easy for them to do so. So you're confident this will come out? I certainly hope so. And I'd say based on um, – and I've also had responses from some Republicans too. And I, I, I commend Senator Tillis on the Senate Armed Services Committee side because he seems to get it. When the Undersecretary of Personnel Readiness testified before the Personnel Subcommittee of the Senate Armed Services Committee and didn't seem to be aware of his full force management responsibilities very well and had to be kind of reminded that he has those responsibilities, I think that both the Democratic side of the Senate Armed Services Committee and Senator Tillis in particular were very good on this issue of military in-strength reductions. He understood that it had nothing to do with, in fact, he was concerned. Is this driven by some budgetary constraints from the comptroller, or is this based on the national defense strategy? He gets it, and I'm very, very pleased with the way he follows up. John Anderson is DOD Legislative Representative at the American Federation of Government Employees. We'll post this interview along with a link to AFGE's letter to Congress at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And subscribe to the Federal Drive on Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.